When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ideas Matter by William Collins. The big ideas of our times discussed by the brightest thinkers. It's 9.58am and the editors of William Collins, publishers of non-fiction for over 200 years, have been seduced into a game of I Spy by Carlos. I spy with my little eye something beginning with... uh, Carlos looks after Bibles and religious publishing for the imprint. Tea. Table. Arabella there is keen to gain an early win. No. Miles. Tom. No. Favours the lateral approach. After two more minutes of Tom struggling to think of any other teas, Carlos gives a clue. It's bloody huge. Television. Yes. (laughs) And the game ends as quickly as it begins. So, Tom, it's your turn this week. Who have you got for us? I have got for you the lovely land campaigner, activist and and author Guy Shrubsole. Hello, my name's Guy Shrubsole and the idea I'd like to discuss today is who owns England. So, Miles, how much of uh, England do you own? Um, Actually, sadly, really not very much. It's a lovely idea. About I don't know, it's about a third of an acre, I think, or something like that. I'm trying to buy my first bit of England Uh, at the moment. I've realised it's a very difficult process. And where where do you come, do you think, on the general scale of things? Because there's that fantastic, it's not so much England, but it is Scotland, but actually most of Scotland is owned by 400 people. And exactly. it's most of, most of England owned by probably about the same number of people. Exactly. But um, he's actually inspired by, by Scotland and, and the work of a guy called Andy Whiteman, who um, wrote a book called Who Owns Scotland? Or the subtitle was Who Owns Scotland? And that book, you know, came in on the, off the back of a lot of land reform and a lot of conversation about this topic in, in Scotland. So about owning England, does he go into how to look after the English land? Indeed. And I think that's a big part of the book that maybe has slipped out the, the sort of pitch in terms of the headlines because the headlines are all about oh look at this aristocrat or this, this shell company that owns this absurd amount of land but actually it's I mean Guy wants to inspire everyone from custodians of the land that already exist to farmers and you know he talks about this this idea of gavelkind that was this old Anglo-Saxon way that farms were passed down and broken up through the ages yeah lots of brilliant words and another, another good one was um, a cadastral map there's another word nice. I, cadastral I had, had not heard until I edited this book And so, dear listener, we invite you to consider the question of who owns England, as writer Guy Shrubsole sits down with his editor, Tom Killingbeck. 
one of the interesting things I think I've been curious to find out was in looking into who owns England is actually how much of London is also carved up into these big estates, these mm. ancient estates that sort of these invisible lines of power that crop up in things like you know, Grosvenor Place or Grosvenor Crescent, for example, which is named after the, the landowner, one of the wealthiest families in in, in England and the Groveners who, whose mm. fortunes and estates go back to the Norman Conquest. So there is sort of the signs, you can see signs in the city of, of land ownership, but I think in the country it's even more obvious where you're made to feel unwelcome very obviously quite quickly. Obviously, you know, when you were a kid, you, with your parents, took part in the protest movement against the Newbury Bypass and obviously were engaged with activism and radicalism. And then now as an adult, you set out on this pretty ambitious quest. What was the sort of igniting spark where you thought, actually, in the, in the book you talk a lot about how, just how opaque the British and the, and the English in particular have been with land use and the reasons for that. But, but what was the sort of spark that made you think, actually, I, as a citizen journalist and activist, can actually take on this absolutely ridiculously ambitious task of, of working out? I mean, I guess I didn't necessarily start out thinking I could come to an answer, complete answer, and the book does not come to a, an absolute definitive answer. That's why there's the question mark in the title <laughs> still of Who Owns England. But I guess it was really, it was sparked by just the sheer impossibility or the, the sheer frustration of, of how difficult it was to find out an answer to this kind of seemingly simple question of who owns England and that sort of it got me writing wanting to write a blog so it started mm. out as a blog and to try and encourage people to kind of pitch in along the way and but you, you presumably the fact that there's freedom of information requests yes. digital mapping yes it seems like this quest that you set out on wouldn't have been possible even 10 20 years ago I think that's right I think that and clearly people have tried to answer this question before but what's happened in the last 20 years, as you say, is, is that there are new tools have come to light, to our aid, to the aid of citizen journalists and to everyone who wants to investigate stuff, such as freedom of information requests, which are you made, made lots of use of to be able to kind of ask public authorities what land they own. And if, if they could send me maps, even the Ministry of Defence ultimately crumbled and sent me a map of everything they own, despite <laughs> the secrecy around some of military lands. But also things like GIS mapping or geographical information systems, it's, it's digital mapping effectively, and did a lot of work with an amazing computer programmer and data journalist called Anna Powell Smith, with who I built some of the maps at Who Owns England. And so, yeah, I think, I think there are new tools that now we can use to try and answer this question. But a lot obviously remains unknown and locked up behind the big doors of the land registry, the government body that is actually tasked with registering all land in England and should be able to tell us at the drop of a hat who owns it all has resolutely refused to do so for the last 160 years of, it, of its existence. But there have been previous attempts to sort of do what your, you and all of your colleagues and the people you've inspired with the, with the book and the blog are doing. And maybe it'd be interesting for listeners to sort of hear about the history of this. Certainly, and I guess it goes back nearly a thousand years to Doomsday Book. Most people have heard of the Doomsday Survey and, and the fact that it was, you know, the kind of the the first attempt by the Norman king, William the Conqueror, when he, after he came over in 1066 and conquered England and said, all this land is mine and now I'm going to survey it and find out who owns farms on it and so basically I can tax them better and then also parcel it all out to my baronial cronies and my clergy and so on as well. But very few people seem to have heard of the second doomsday survey, for example, which was done 800 years later. And that was done by, instigated by the House of Lords, by the, the landowning House of Lords, as it was in the Victorian period. And basically, it was a response to various radicals and reformers who'd been saying, 
well, hang on a minute. We know, we can surely, surely it's the case that a very small number of people own this country and we want to find out the truth. We want greater fairness, basically. And at the time, the noble lords, in their wisdom, said, this surely can't be true. We must have become much more democratic now. We must have distributed the proceeds of the economy to more people. So let's do a survey and disprove these ranting radicals. <laughs> so they sent out this, conducted this survey over a couple of years, very comprehensive survey, even more co comprehensive than the original Doomsday book. And the results came back in. And funnily enough, it actually proved the radicals completely right that about 4,000 members of the aristocracy and gentry owned half of England, which is just an astonishing, <laughs> astonishing figure, really, and very, not very different, really, from the case back during the original Doomsday survey when mm. around 200 Norman barons owned about half of England. And how different is it now? Like, obviously, this is slightly sort of spoilery to the book, but <laughs> in terms of that, certainly the aristocracy, one of the great shocks I had when first reading the book, you know, you hear so much about the sort of great houses after the war crumbling and there's so many sort of novels and films about sort of Aristos stuck in a, a rainy roofed conservatory, sort of miserably surveying their grey estate <laughs> as it's all parceled up and given to social housing or whatever. Mm, mm. But actually, the aristocracy, as you found it, do still mm. ha have a huge amount of land. And it, it's not hard to sort of name and shame them because there are so few of them. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating looking into this because I think what's happened is there is this decline and fall of the aristocracy after the First World War that lots of people have perhaps heard of or think they know about from novels about it or, or uh, you know, kind of visits to stately homes to see the sort of what the National Trust has inherited in terms of these crumbling remains of stately properties, stately houses. But actually, there's been not just the decline and fall, but the strange survival of aristocratic England, which is evident in everything from the fact that the Duke of Northumberland, for example, still owns 100,000 acres of land in England making him by far the biggest landowner in Northumberland, owns about 10% of the county. And the fact that still you can pick up the Sunday Times rich list every year and right at the top there are still dukes and duchesses and marquesses of this and that who owe their fortunes to the lucky inheritance of land and property. And so that has persisted despite there being a kind of a decline in the aristocracy after the Edwardian period. It's really, I think, fascinating and, and does say quite a lot about England and Britain that things change very little or very slowly at times in this old country that we live in. And the aristocracy still own a very large proportion of the land. I, I estimate about 30% of England still lies in the hands of the aristocracy and gentry. When you say aristocracy and gentry... With that 30% figure, how many people are you really talking about, do you think? There's about 800 peers, so dukes and marquises and viscounts and barons and all these sort of the, the flummery of aristocracy, about 1,200 baronets who are the sort of the slightly lower tier of the aristocracy. Mm. And I would say they, they probably own about 30% still. And if you were to broaden it out a little bit further to include what I could have called new money in the book, so the sort of the, the Russian oligarchs yeah. and the businessmen and the city bankers and so on, Around about 25,000 people own far less than 1% of the population own half the country. Some of the, the reviews of the book, you know, from the right-wing press have been interesting in terms of this sort of sense of custodianship and this sort of defence of the aristocracy as if these people go, if these 30% of people who are less than 1% of the population, these people are looking after these estates. What do you say to that, that argument about if these, these these custodians that have tendered our land for nearly a thousand years almost, mm. if they lose that custodianship, what happens to the land? 
I think what I try and say in the book is that many members of the aristocracy do have a self-interest in preserving their estates for the long term because they are clearly expecting to hand it on to their, and it is almost always their their sons, their eldest sons, they will hand on that estate to, to future generations. It's just that it's a very narrow subset of future generations, i.e. their direct descendants. So I wouldn't say that it's necessarily antithetical to environmental sustainability, to the long-term management of the land. And there are some, some landowners who do amazing stuff with their estates. But I think the thing is, is that the idea of the aristocratic landowner, or just, just generally large landowner as benevolent steward, is more talked about than tested. Mm. that it is something that is never really interrogated or there's this sort of still this sort of English sense of deference about the big estate that dominates the village that may well provide jobs in the area but doesn't necessarily get held to account for whether it's doing the right thing. And I think that that's that principle of kind of complete voluntarism about how we look after vast swathes of our land has always been accepted. But in an era when we're facing a climate emergency, we're seeing a collapse of species, not just around the world, but in, you know, specifically in the UK as well. We've lost half of all farmland birds in the last 50 years. I think there really needs to be more searching questions asked of these big kind of claims towards being the stewards of the land and kind of holding that to account and saying, well, what, what more could we be doing that's, that's better to rejuvenate the land? If we open it up, you know, just beyond the aristocracy to mm. big landowners, you you know, you use old money and new money mm. in the book. But there's also, you know, corporations, there's people from Denmark buying huge swathes of land sure. um, yeah. with purportedly, you know, good intentions and things like this. Let's see all these people as just the custodians of our land who have usually got it because of privilege and wealth. What are the most egregious failings of these people, as you see it, in contributing to environmental crises or the housing crises? Well, one of the things I looked into for the book was corporations that run landfill sites, for example, in the yeah. past, and you know, taken an area of land and just carpeted it with with our rubbish, basically. And you can sort of say, well, okay, that's that's all that's all of our problem. You know, we we all generate waste. We're all part of the throwaway society, the consumer throwaway society. But this is specific instances I look at in the book of companies that have operated landfills and those landfills have, have sort of been left to rot and to leak. And the company has either wound itself up and walked away or just, you know, merged with another one to mm. become an even bigger conglomerate. And and the land itself, although it's still all the rubbish is still there, all the waste is still there, leaking out into the Thames, for example, this this site near Tilbury that I visit, and this entire shoreline of ancient waste that's just leaking out into the yeah. into the river. But you know, the landowner isn't responsible for it at all anymore. I mean, I guess another example would be the fact that vast areas of our uplands are owned and managed for the sole purpose of grouse shooting and the fact that an area the size of Greater London is given over to this in England. Which is an in incredible statistic. It's just, yeah, it's, and, and, and even worse if you go and visit one because you sort of walk around it and you, if you go in spring or summer, you obviously see the, the lovely heather blooming. But go in winter <laughs> and try and find some wildlife there. It's pretty depressing walking around some of our uplands where there should be really, I mean, there, there really should be havens for wildlife hmm. but they've been managed as a monoculture and i think that's a very clear instance of how a specific very small elite of landowners about 150 estates that own all of this land in the uplands in england have managed it for the sole purpose of, of grouse shooting and, and that has contributed to a massive decline in wildlife and also to the habitat itself the ecosystem hmm. where they burn it and drain it and so on and it's become 
And it feels degraded. like to the general public, a grouse moor sounds like a, a haven itself, but it's, it's important to understand that managed habitats often are managed badly and are just as bad as paving over <laughs> something with a car park. And, and one example of that, which is, again, sort of something that you maybe surprises you when you look at your research and, and read the book, is some stuff about, you know, the Forestry Commission or the National Trusts, these institutions that we often think of as these benevolent curators and custodians of the land that was that was a really eye-opening thing for me and i think all these things are contributing to the environmental crisis in different ways when you were investigating the trusts and what did you find that was sort of troubling it in us sort of as citizens entrusting our our nature mm. to what are very mm. large institutions start with the forestry commission i mean i wouldn't like people to think that i give the public sector an easy ride that i'm just mm. just as i think owen patterson would have me a kind of lefty obvious lefty socialist coming out in favor of the public sector because i think it's about accountability and it's about the fact that you know the forestry commission was set up 100 years ago this year it was set up specifically to grow timber to replace all the trees we chopped down for basically world war one for all the planks in the trenches and the sleepers we had to lay down to create new railways and so on so it, it was it was part of the state apparatus to basically um, create a warfare state you know to, to really prepare the state for war and to send these sort of serried ranks of of uniform pines which you know kind of very militaristic in there when how they look in themselves over hills and dales where they weren't necessarily well placed to be to be grown you know lots of trees lots of forests were planted on peat um, which really shouldn't have been because it really screws up the soil, contributes to carbon emissions as well in, in itself. But equally at the same time, there was the emergence of these big landowning conservation charities and groups like the National Trust, as you say, as well. And I think, you know, they set out, have set out with um, much better intentions than the Forestry mm. Commission. They, were, they obviously were there and, and have grown to be custodians of the land in, in a much greater way than the Forestry Commission was setting out to be. Particularly nowadays, you know, the National Trust has got a membership of about 5 million people. So there's kind of in some ways inherently more democratic mm. because it's got that accountability to, it, to its members to a certain extent. But I do think it's an interesting question about, well, it's called the National Trust, but whose nation and in whose trust, you know, mm. does it buy up land? And what does it say about us as a nation, the kind of the particular landmarks that it selects to buy? So I, I sort of visit the, you know, the White Cliffs of Dover and walk along the, the cliff tops, and it's obviously a very beautiful bit of chalk downland and got lots of stuff there that's going for it and it's obviously a huge part of our history but it is also the face that we show to the rest of Europe for example <laughs> yeah. you know it's it's this landscape which is embodied with the idea of territory This is Paige the co-host of Giggly Squad and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive and June Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. 
Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's that tension between, you know, this image of Britain and its rolling hills. And, and mm. you know, even on the cover of the book, we had we have sort of rolling hills as these sort of tempting utopia, mm. sort of just beyond us the Gerard Winstan the idea of you know like a green pleasant land mm. I, I often find especially with nature writing we, we, do, we do often portray England as this sort of bucolic wild place that's just slightly out of reach and with the right management with the right things it can be, it can be brought back but a lot of the places that presumably need trusts and, what, and national trusts to look after are actually aren't very pretty and aren't near anything interesting and, and actually might, yeah. like some, some of the fights that need yeah, to be fought aren't in photogenic sure, sure. emblematic well, and, and I think it, it, it's about power, isn't it? It's about... The, the National Trust started out as quite a radical organisation. I think sort of over its history, the National Trust lost its way a bit because it started to become effectively, to some extent, a tax break for the aristocracy through which they could entrust their stately homes and their estates and kind of escape some of the larger taxes that were being brought in by, by modern governments. But I think it, it's changed over time. It's gone through different phases. And I think probably nowadays it's... This year it's looking at, I think it's got a theme of people's landscapes. It's looking literally at landscapes mm. that it owns and manages that have seen sites of struggle. So, for example, Kinder Scout, which used to belong to the Duke of Devonshire and famously was the place at which Benny Rothman and a whole set of ramblers, working class people from Manchester, went in 1932 and defied the gamekeepers armed with cudgels who were trying to keep them off this beautiful stretch of moorland. And as, as a result of the Kinder Scout trespass, we have now today got a right to roam. We have a right to roam over moorland and other beautiful habitats and landscapes in our, in our country. But it's also an unfinished battle, an unfinished struggle for power within England because we only have access to about 10% of England and Wales in terms of open access land. So there's all that countryside that's mm. still off limits, still belongs to private landowners who keep us out. We've talked about, you know, corporations, shell companies, the national trusts, the aristocracy. I suppose the, the biggest two landowners who we haven't really mentioned a huge amount are Queen Liz and yes. and also the church. And I think those are two of the most interesting sort of institutions you talk about in the book because I think from a very young age and just culturally we accept that the church is going to own a huge amount of land and we accept that the queen and all of her estates are sort of fair game because she's the queen. Yeah. What recommendation, you mean, A, are the crown and the church particularly malign custodians of their land in your view and if so if they're if you do think that they need, need a huge amount of reform 
how do you reform such sort of august and time <laughs> time worn and impenetrable almost institutions that, mm. that like you're one guy with a very good data scientist by your side mm. and then they're the sort of the church and and the crown they sort of sit at the heart of the problem don't they in some ways in that if you go back to the the beginning the 1066 and all that it was ultimately the norman kings who centralized land ownership in the body of the crown in the, the person of the crown and then the church propped up that social order for a thousand years afterwards. But putting that to one side, <laughs> we're obviously in a very different situation nowadays. Obviously, the, you know, the, the person of Queen Elizabeth and the, the monarchy and the, the, the family around Queen Elizabeth are obviously massively popular. And frankly, I, I'm not bothered either way whether we continue to have a monarch. Others might disagree. You know, we could have an elected head of state, I suppose. But when it comes to the land and property that's attached to it, I think there are some questions to be asked and that could be reformed without necessarily touching the overall institution of the monarchy and one of those things is the fact that there are these incredibly weird medieval anachronisms that are still attached to the crown in the form of the two duchies the duchy of lancaster and the duchy of cornwall and both of those are, are huge huge estates that are effectively the duchy of cornwall is the private estate of the of the prince of wales prince charles and it's been inherited by him and his predecessors since the 1300s and the, the duchy of lancaster is this huge empire effectively of land that was first put together by John of Gaunt back in the 1300s as the thing that he wanted to hand on to his family. I sort of think of him as being a bit like Tywin Lannister out of Game (laughs) of Thrones, this sort of patriarch of the Lancaster family who wanted to make sure that his sons ruled forevermore and had a a big wadge of land as effectively their pocket money. But those two things still exist even today and are basically unaccountable impenetrable to things like freedom of information requests and don't pay things like corporation tax you know there's sort of all these sorts of weird anachronisms that they contain and i think basically abolish them and fold them into the crown estate and leave it to parliament to decide how the income streams Mm. from them are spent whether that's best spent in giving it back to the royal family if we can continue to have a monarchy or if it's better spent on things like schools and hospitals or other things that we also need as well and want in society today the church is a different question the church we definitely think of as having a huge amount of land i think of the church still as being kind of pre-henry the eighth pre-reformation reformation style church with you know monks running around and uh, having huge abbeys and stuff obviously all that got nicked off them by henry the eighth back in the 1500s but actually what's happened to them is that the church has lost even more land since then and not as a result of any big land grab it seems but simply as a result of allowing it to trickle away so this weird kind of situation has crept up where the church used to own all this land called glebe land and it was land that was basically there for for vicars and prelates to to be able to draw an income from but over the time they basically sold it off yeah and but to who well i just we don't really know we don't really know i mean you can still occasionally you can sort of walk down a road and it's called glebe road mm. and you can see a farm and it's called glebe farm and that probably almost certainly so used to lo- own belong to the church private land owners really rather than any yeah. yeah, not necessarily any particularly nefarious purpose or, or yeah. sort of inheritance, but a really, really odd that it happened. And, and, you know, we have the kind of Archbishop of Canterbury today saying, well, we'd love the church to do more about the housing crisis. And you sort of think, well, do they actually have the land to do anything about it? Mm. And the church commissioners do. They still have quite a lot of land, but then they manage it in such a way. They're really hard nosed in the way that they manage it. Yeah. And, and they're obviously thinking perhaps more about uh, mammon 
and the bottom line yeah. than p- potentially about the social good that they could be doing with their estate. But that's another another question as well, really. I mean, talking about, you know, social good, I mean, in the end of your, your book, you set out these sort of proposals, very modest proposals mostly, <laughs> suggesting to the reader and to the wider movement about how we might go about reforming everything we've been talking about. Rather than, you know, asking you to talk talk through those, where, as it stands, you know, it, at, we're sort of at this crossroads with Brexit. Obviously, it's been delayed. When we, th- we thought we'd be publishing the book, bang on Brexit, we've actually got a few more months of <laughs> sort of scheming before that. But who are the, you know, where are the, the big conversations at, as it stands? And how will Brexit and current political turmoil affect the land reform movement? Mm. Ultimately, do you think the, the land registry will be opened up in the same way that Companies mm. House has? I think it's a really exciting time. I think there's been an upsurge in discussions about land and land reform over the past couple of years, and I hope this is adding to it. And I think that Brexit, well, whatever shade of Brexit, or if you, even if we don't Brexit in the end, there has been a whole debate about opened up by Brexit about farm subsidies, because we're part of the European Common Agricultural Policy currently, but if we leave it as a result of Brexit, then we are going to have to have an entirely new system put in place. And one of the potentially few good things that might come of Brexit, in my view, is the fact that that old system which we had, which basically rewarded large landowners for owning large amounts of land and for doing very little else, might finally get binned. And we may have a much better system put in place, which you know people like Mucklegove have been working on to their credit, but lots of groups have been pushing for for decades, which is a system where you, you give public money for, for public goods, you give out money to landowners and land managers to, to actually look after the land properly. So there's putting a bit of money where this claim of stewardship mm. is. I think other things that are bubbling up really are, well, we've, we've still got a massive housing crisis, which is was there before Brexit, will probably be there long after Brexit, unfortunately. And as long as that remains the case, as long as there are thousands, millions of people struggling to be able to afford a home or pay rent or, you know, part of generation rent or are one of the tens of thousands of people who are homeless in this country, there needs to be a land reform movement because ultimately the housing crisis is not a crisis of the price of bricks and mortar. They haven't gone up in price massively suddenly. It's a crisis of land and land affordability. And the way in which we have failed to allow councils or the public sector to build more affordable housing and buy land more cheaply to be able to do so, I think is one of the key things that needs to be overcome. One of the key reforms that any government needs to bring in if they're serious about tackling the housing crisis is, 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 is essentially around land reform and the, and the value of land. So whether that looks like a land value tax, it's most extreme, or, or you know just tweaks to things like allowing councils to buy land more cheaply and borrow again and so on. Lastly, I mean, whatever political stripe you are of, I think we can hopefully all agree that transparency is better than secrecy in the end. The secrecy that has persisted around land ownership in England is not just bizarre and anachronistic, but actually is helping things like money laundering, infecting our economy. It's providing a a veil that doesn't need to be there to protect dirty money coming into the economy. And by pulling back that veil, by pulling back that veil of secrecy, we can actually reveal land ownership for the first time in a very long time. But also, I think we can deal with some of the problems we've been facing with offshore companies. We can deal with some of the problems we've been facing in terms of concentrated land ownership, because I think also once more people understand how unfair and unequal this system has been, I think more questions will be asked, more pressure will be applied for things like community right to buy and uh, and allowing more people to take a stake in the land again. Guy, thanks so much for coming and talking to us. Thank you. That was Guy Shrubsole. 
In conversation with editor Tom Killingbeck. Our programme today was brought to you by William Collins, an imprint of HarperCollins Publishers, and was produced by Matt Hill at Rethink Audio. People who helped put this episode together are Anuska Tate, Tara El Azawi, and Jack Chalmers. Share your thoughts on this podcast by emailing ideasmatter at harpercollins.co.uk or on social at WM Collins Books. You can buy Who Owns England by Guy Shrubsoul as a hardback, audiobook, or ebook, where Guy dives even deeper into the ideas discussed this week. Thank you for listening and Keep an eye out for the first chapter from the audiobook of Who Owns England, which will appear in this feed on Friday. And come back next week when we will discuss if femininity can revolutionise the workplace with Helena Morrissey. It's a good time, I think, to be a girl sort of growing up now rather than necessarily a good time to be a woman. I think it's a better time to be a woman now, but I think particularly for young girls and, you know, I'm including people just graduating now, I'm not just saying children, that actually it's increasingly a genuinely, absolutely good time to be a girl because you can influence what happens next. To hear that episode first, don't forget to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify and on Acast. Thank you for listening and goodbye.